and welcome to episode 27 of The Game Pit. This is when we discuss our top 10s of 2013. So obviously we did an end of year review and we talked about some of our favourite releases from last year. But every year around this time, the two of us are going to do a geek list, uh, I've done it for the last few years, with our top games. Because I think certainly the games that come out a bit later on in the year, you need to have some time to have a few plays to be able to give a, a decent opinion on the year as a whole. And it's around this time of year that the BGG rankings start getting sorted out. We've had the Dice Tower Awards. So we're going to have a chat about that and have a little look back over 2013 as a whole. And as Sean said, we're going to be discussing our top 10 games each from 2013. Yeah, so what we're going to do is have a very, very brief overview of the games and then discuss some of the pros and cons of the games and um, quickly move on because a lot of these games we have discussed in previous episodes. So we hope you enjoy this episode and as another reminder, the two of us are going to be appearing at LUNCON 3, the World Science Fiction Convention at the XL in London. Which is going to be held on the 14th to the 18th of August. There is a big games tent area. So if you've got any interest in the sci-fi world as a whole, or even just in gaming, come down for the day. There's lots of panels. There'll be people from uh, the literary and TV and film worlds hanging around and giving some talks. And I am going to be on a couple of panels discussing gaming. And we'd love to see you there and hopefully get a game in with you. And don't forget, you can find us on 2d6.org, along with a whole host of gaming goodness. And we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network, along with the very best in gaming podcasts. So in this episode, we are going to be focusing for the vast majority on the best of the best from last year. However, there is something that we like to add into our geek list each year, and that is the biggest disappointment of the year. Now, it's not necessarily the worst game we've played that was released in 2013, because as you know, there are a lot of really bad games out. To be the biggest disappointment, it has to be something that we had some hope for, that we thought was going to be a hit, and then it didn't quite turn out to be. Now, I think both these games are going to be familiar to you if you've listened for any length of time. Sean, do you want to give your thoughts on what a disappointment means to you before I crack on? Just something that, as you said, something that we were looking forward to, that my example isn't necessarily the highest hopes for the game itself, but... I did have certain expectations of the game and it just didn't meet them, Ronan. Managing expectations is the key to a happy life, Sean. Keep them low all at all the... times. <laughs> okay, so this is a game that came out at Essen 2013. Is my biggest disappointment. Now, it is not the worst game in the world by any stretch of imagination. It's not even a bad game. But I had real high hopes for Glass Road. It was coming from Uwe Rosenberg, who's one of my very favourite designers. It was a Euro playing in under an hour and a half, which is unusual for him on his recent designs. And it looked to be doing something different. Uh, it looked to be adding in some of the me mechanisms from Witch's Brew, which is a game that I enjoy, uh, adding in some interesting resource management. And it did do all those things. And it did have some interesting bits in it. And that's often the key to one of these biggest disappointment games, is that they're promising. They have a lot to them, but they don't quite work. And with Glass Road... 
definitely a case of diminishing returns. The first couple of games I really enjoyed and I thought, oh, you know, when I get my head around this game a bit more and I learn the buildings, I learn the strategy, I'm going to really enjoy it more and more. But for each play, it's gone slightly downhill. Which buildings come out is far too random. There are far too few decisions to make in the game for, for trying to struggle with managing 10 different resources and it just doesn't work as a whole game for me i don't find it that enjoyable experience it's not awful but it's not what i hoped it would be sean you've played glass road to me what are your thoughts on it i can only really echo what you said ronan it just didn't quite live up to the the mighty uve rosenberg's previous like obviously agricola caverna was another big release and uh, we'll probably talk about that later in the episode spoilers oh indeed but yeah it just it seemed like a collection and we said it at the time it seemed for me it seemed like a collection of mechanics or mechanisms within the game that didn't necessarily all tie together to form a cohesive game but yeah it was it's interesting, but didn't quite hit those high notes, Ronan. Okay, absolutely. And Sean, your biggest disappointment in 2013? In a slight difference to yours, Ronan, uh, this is actually a bad game, in my opinion. Anybody who listened to our Picking Over the Bones episode when we discussed Dungeon Roll will know the level that we really didn't like this game to. Now, it was a game that enticed me on Kickstarter, I was kind of blinded by the bling of the game. It looks beautiful. Nice little treasure chest box. And I was looking for a very, very light dungeon crawler-esque type game. And I like dice games. And I thought the two would marry nicely. And I thought, yeah, this is going to be a really light game. Play it in 10, 15 minutes in a lunch break, that kind of thing. That's what I was looking for. What I got was not a game. It was a... Nicely designed set of components. And, yeah, there's not a lot more to say. It just wasn't the game. There is nothing more to say. It's total and utter rubbish. I'm <laughs> shocked it was ever published. Uh, it wasn't disappointment. It was worse than disappointment. It was just terrible. Oh, shocking. We've said enough about Dungeon Roll. We'll give it enough airtime. are going to get on a more positive footing now and we're going to kick off with our own personal top 10 and i have the pleasure of going first and in a manner familiar to many of you my number 10 appears later on on sean's list and we will talk about it then sean what's your number 10 oh exciting it is my number 10 ronan is a game we discussed before heading off to Essen and then played at Essen. It's Palmyra from Iron Games, designed by Bernd Eisenstein. Now, Palmyra is set in the Roman province of Palmyra and it's a tile laying game where players must strike a balance between expanding their taxable land and collecting the tax from those lands. Uh, there's a few other things to consider where you can block people or obviously you need to be avoiding being blocked and there's the cut and run aspect to the game. Now, we played a good few of this in Essen and it, for me, it was the surprise hit for Essen, Ronan. It was a surprise. It was a case of Iron Games have come out with some interesting games before. We've discussed them. The likes of uh, Peloponnese 
and Porto Cathago and Bern Eisenstein I think likes to find a slightly different angle on established mechanisms and this was on we picked up and we played and every night we played it pretty much one or two games in Essen and someone we played with went and bought it the next day and it was our little sleeper hit amongst our friends at Essen it's probably in my top 30 for the year last year the only thing I'll say about it that's stopping it getting higher and this is one of my ratings that's definitely not fixed that can go up or down I think it's a good game but it's slightly counterintuitive and most especially it can seem because the game goes in waves you kind of build up tiles and then you score a lot with those tiles but then you find that you use the tiles you had to score so therefore you need to build them up again because it goes in those waves and whoever hits that way first it can seem like they've got a massive advantage i think there's clever mechanisms within the game to prevent that from happening and that you can pick up and reset and that you can really leech off other players and nothing's really a set in stone as you expect it to be in a toll lane game but i haven't played it enough in groups of people who are familiar enough with it to really get into whether those mechanisms that allow you to be highly flexible with your tactics really work so i don't think I've played it to the level of expertise that, that tells me, is it a really very good game or is it a case that it only takes 45 minutes? If it becomes slightly unbalanced on initial tile draws, then don't worry about it too much. And that's the only thing that stopped me from going any further with it. I'd love to get some of our friends together who, play, who know the game well and give it another crack and find out what that real depth to it is. Sean, what's, what's the real selling point for you? Why has it made your top 10? I think it's just the... Uh... Almost the, the tactical nous that you've got to employ in the game. You can't just lay tiles. You can't just move your text collector around. You've got to think about every move. And it's it's that cut and run thing that I really like. It's choosing when you're going to maximize your text collection and get out and start building in another area, whatever you need to do. I I think it looks nice. It's, it's well designed. All the tiles stand out from each other well enough so so you don't get that confusion on what, or what land is that, what is that. So it was a little bit different as well. It's it's not just your Carcassonne clone. It added a few new elements to it with that tax collector and your soldier. And there was a, an, a Caesar expansion or uh, diff, higher difficulty setting as well, which added a little bit more to the game as well. So... I, I was very, very surprised. I'm not the biggest tile lane game fan in the world, and Carcassonne being the exception to that. But I think this, the, I mean, more surprise for me probably, that's got it into the, my top 10. Okay, lovely. So, cracking on, my number nine appears higher up in Sean's list, and we'll talk about it then. You've got to stop doing this. It's me doing all the talking. I, I, I'm, I'm going to cut you pretty short on this next one, but carry on. <laughs> As I was, I was about to say, I'm about to get a good kicking because uh, this one really isn't one of Ronan's favourites, but it is one of mine, so boo sucks to you, Ronan. My number nine is Police Precinct from Common Man Games, designed by Ole Steins. It is a cooperative game where players take the role of police attempting to solve a murder while at the same time trying to keep the city crime down and under control. Players have to strike a balance between solving the crime mystery and apprehending the criminal behind it, and then keeping on top of the lower level crime and smaller cases. What do I like about this game? I like, again, I'm talking about the balance again. 
I like the balance that the game strikes between having to keep on top of the crime and having to solve this major crime and get into the the bottom of it to the point where you have to chase after the criminal. Things are happening all around the board. You've really got to think. Now, Rona will, Rona will completely go in the opposite way and think it's all kind of prescriptive, And but I'm not putting words into his mouth. He can talk for himself, as you well know. I like the way that players have to work together in this. I like the way that... You do have to keep on top of the rioting gangs and there's crime sprouting out all over the city that you've got to attend. Otherwise, it just gets out of control and you start losing control of the city. If you lose control of the city, the game's over and you've lost. Or if the the uh, culprit of the major crime escapes, you lose the game. So I, I, think, I think the game works well. It's... Not the best rule book in the world. Takes a while to get into it and to work out what you're doing. When it, and but when it boils down to it, it's actually quite a simple game. When you know the game, it's easy to teach, and I like it. What I haven't got to yet is this bad cop scenario. Well, I haven't played it with enough people to have the bad cop in there, and I think that's going to add a really, really interesting aspect to it. Off you go, Rodan. It's ugly. No one say it's ugly. It's ugly. It's horrific. And how would you say it's unthematic? You're, you're police officers solving crime in the city. You're not, though. It's completely gamey, so you're constantly gaming the rules. You don't work together. You just do different things to each other. You very rarely have to actually cooperate or work together or take a chain of actions to deal with anything. The setup's completely random, so the game's random as to how it's going to go. Far too much random in it. When threats come up, they just come out of nowhere with no sense to them. You can't, uh, whether you're close to it or you're not close to it, and that can have a huge effect on how difficult the game is. It just wasn't any fun, Sean. It's so average and ugly and dull and not particularly deep. So, well, surely that is the thematic side of it, because a police officer doesn't know where the next crime's going to come from, surely. I don't want to be that police officer. <laughs> That's not a fun game. Well, I think when we talked about this before, we agreed to disagree, and I don't think it's going to change. I knew it would upset you, but at least I didn't put Hollywood in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know what to say. Moving on. My number eight for 2013 is La Boca, designed by Inca Brand and Marcus Brand and, and published initially by Cosmos. This is a partnerships, real-time building game. The game comes with a number of coloured blocks, and the box itself is the board, and it's got a grid on there. And it comes with two sets of cards, which are pretty much the same. One is more difficult than the other. But what they do is, each card has got a pattern on either side. And the card gets placed in the middle, and you press a timer. Now, amongst the players, at any one time, two players are playing, but it's going to be a different partnership every time you go around. So if myself and Sean and Puria and Lloyd are playing the game, on my first round, I might be teamed with Lloyd, and then Sean might be teamed with Lloyd, and then Puria might be teamed with me, and then Lloyd will be teamed with Sean. 
And then we go around again, and you're going to take a turn to partner with every other player and work together to build the pattern on the card against the clock. Now, on either side, you've got two different patterns, and with these coloured blocks on the grid, you have to build them so that your side looks like your side of the card, and the other players, your partner at the times, side of the blocks looks like the pattern on the card. And once you've done that, you stop the stopwatch, and how quickly you've done it is how many points the two of you score. But you win individually because you're going to take turns and you're going to play with every other player twice. So you're going to have your own individual score at the end of it. So you must work together, but temporarily. It is a really clever, fun game. It uh, needs to get a much bigger release in the English language. I'm sure it's going to have a huge impact because it's really easy to teach. Gamers and non-gamers enjoy it. You can play it with older kids. It's got that refreshing real-time element to it so you know how quick a game's going to be. It's going to keep moving. Everyone's laughing and having fun. It's got that really annoying Tetris thing of it. It's much easier when you're watching someone else play than when you're playing it yourself and you're kind of desperate to give each other hints. I really think this is a great, fun game. Sean Labocca? It is a fun game. Every time I have played it, it has been fun. I think... It doesn't outstay its welcome because it is quite fast-paced and it's over quite quickly. If I was to play a couple of hours of this, I think I would be absolutely soul-destroyingly bored. But I think if you play half an hour in between games, great little party-style puzzle game, it fills the niche it sets out to fill. I've got no issues with it. It's not my type of game. I probably wouldn't buy it, but I'd definitely have a game of it any time. I found that it's a great start of the night game because it kind of, you know, people come in, often we're gaming in the evening, it's after work, everyone's kind of thinking about what they've been doing all day. It kind of clicks you in because you have to get, you have to start thinking quickly. You are thinking, it is competitive, you are going against the clock, it gets the juices flowing for you to then to go in and maybe start playing something slightly heavier. Um, really enjoy it and that's my number eight game for 2013, La Boca. So, from Laboka on to my number eight, which is Invaders, from White Goblin Games, designed by Mark Chaplin. Now, this is a two-player game, a asymmetrical card-driven battle between invading aliens and the humans of Earth, and players are going to play cards, basically, to attack their opponents and defend against attacks. And there's a certain way that the aliens can beat the humans, and there's a certain way that the humans can defend Earth and fend off these aliens. We have talked about it before. We have talked about the incredibly tense games we've had of this. For me, it's just a very well-put-together two-player battle. It's all about getting into somebody's head making them think they're losing because this game as we said before it makes you feel like you're always doing badly you could be winning the game you could be losing the game you don't really know you always feel like the other player is doing slightly better than you unless things go horribly wrong for somebody it looks lovely it's well put together there was a printing error on the first run but ho-hum they they were very quick to rectify that. A very good game. It would be a lot higher, but for the fact I can't take the tension. It's very, very tense, isn't it, Ronan? Yes, this is incredibly tense. I know we went over it a lot post-Essen when we first played it, and we played it a couple of times since then as well. 
it is a real undertaker. I know that we have to be in the right frame of mind to take on a game of it. You don't want to be taken on when you're a little bit stressed from a day at work. Or you've got other stuff on your mind. We kind of have to cleanse the palate, prepare ourselves. It's a bit like going into battle. It's a bit like when we, you know, we go boxing, sparring. You have to be ready for it and up for the fight. It really, that's that's how it feels to me. A, a real one-on-one who can uh, who can stick it out and who can keep their mental muscles flexing. I, it's clearly revolver with bells and whistles and and beefed up a little bit i really enjoy revolver i really enjoy invaders this is probably the closest off the games you've chosen that didn't quite make my top 10 i think the only reason it didn't make my top 10 is that even after a few plays and we're up above half a dozen plays of it i still feel like we're just scratching the surface i still feel like we're, we're not great at the game i still feel like we don't know those decks there are so many Almost every card's unique in those big, thick decks. So in order to kind of understand the combos that are coming up, and not just your own combos, but how they might work against the other person's deck, I think this is going to take a lot, a lot of plays. I look forward to having those plays. It's just a game I really can see us playing for years and years and years. A really, really good game. Uh, Yeah, Sean? Nothing more to add other than that. You're absolutely right in terms of you do really have to go in (laughs) with an open, calm state of mind. Otherwise, it does get a little bit too stressful. As I said, it would have been a lot higher, but for that stress, I just can't take it. I just can't take it, especially playing against Ronan. But there you go. (laughs) You care too much. I do care too much. My number eight, Invaders. Number seven also appears slightly later in this list on Sean's list. So I'm going to have to have quite a long wait to talk about it because, Sean, your number seven is? My number seven is a game we have talked about a lot on the game pit. It is Francis Drake from Eagle Games and designed by Peter Hawes. And that's also my number seven. This is the one game we completely agreed on, wasn't it? It was, it was. I don't think any listeners are going to be surprised that we included this game in. But go on, give us a very brief overview of it, Sean. It's going to be very, very brief because we have talked about it so much. It's a game where players must place workers to gather supplies and bonuses at Plymouth Harbour before sailing into the Caribbean to plunder villages, forts 
Spanish ships as well as gathering some goods. That's as, that's as quick as I can get it. It's yeah, it's a game that I know some people have had some concerns with regards to replayability, and I think Sean, that might be the only thing that stopped us from going even higher in your list. Post Destiny was I obviously rated it really highly, and I have since bought the game. Ronan had it at that stage. I now own it. We both own it, so it's a beautiful looking game. But as Ronan said, I have a little bit of worry about the replayability. Every game I've played of it tends to follow the same pattern. The person who gets the golden hind tends to just eke out a win. I'm not sure about how many avenues there are to victory, but it's very enjoyable to play. It looks stunning. It's probably the best looking game I own. And it's, it definitely had to be in my top 10. I understand people's concerns in that there's not the variety of strategy. But actually, as I've had more plays of Francis Drake, and it's not something I could play every week. But as players learn the game, they learn what their scoring opportunities are and they learn the importance of every move. And I find that some new players to it are kind of not very focused on their worker placement because they feel like, well, I'll just get some of this and some of that. And then I'll worry about where I'm going once I see what I've got. And then I'll send my ships out and then we'll just see, hope for the best. But when players know the game, they absolutely eagle eye focus in with laser sights and say, I need four crew, I need three guns, I'm going to get a pinnace, I'm not going to get the golden hind this turn, I'm going to get it next time in order to get the indigo, so I get a full set of trade goods, I know he's going for that galleon, I'm not going to go for that galleon, because I'm going to get my full bows over there, and players really focus in, and then the whole game really tightens up. I think the replayability is there in not playing new players all the time, but in playing players who know the game and therefore appreciate the importance. And when they look at where to next place their worker down, their disc in that Plymouth Harbour area, they can say the same, see the same three options as every other player. And then a lot of enjoyment comes there because when they make that decision between, yeah, because you, in theory you can choose from the whole board, but really you can't. When they make that decision about where to go, everyone knows the implications of that. If they've taken that extra trade good and it means someone's left without one, then everyone knows they're going to have to play catch-up a bit later on or go for a different strategy. And when everyone understands exactly what's going on on the board, I, I do feel that it starts to really, really shine. Yeah, I really, really enjoy the uh, Gitsia-style progressive worker placement in Plymouth Harbour. I really, really love that aspect. I've banged on about it in previous episodes. That's what drew me to the game in the first place once I sort of got over the shock of how beautiful it looks. It is a very good game. I think Ronan's ahead of me in terms of plays of this. So maybe he's a little bit further down the road and starting to understand the game a little bit better than I am. But for me at the moment, my games are all a little bit samey of this. So, But it's still a really, really good game that I will play often and I'll definitely keep it in my collection. So that's our collective number seven for the year. Francis Drake. Cracking onwards and upwards, and my number six for the year is Concordia from Mac Gertz. It is from the master of Rondel games. It's themed around either Italy or the the near west uh, Roman Empire. Players play. I'm going to try and do a thematic explanation of a very thematic game. Some kind of settlers who are spreading out and 
aiding the economic development of the area you're attempting to collect different resources and the real key of it is that everyone starts with the same deck of cards i think you have eight could be ten oh, i should have checked anyway you start with eight or ten cards and they're what drive the actions because every turn you choose a card you play it down and you take the action on the card however there are more cards available to be purchased and those cards as well as giving you actions to to repeat because they come straight into your hand and become part of your small little deck also your end game scoring is based on the cards you have in your deck so not only are you guiding your actions during the game but you should also be guiding your overall strategy and where you're aiming in the game because the cards you bring in your deck dictate how you score like i said resource management there's a bit of economics going on there's some player interaction because where certain players go it makes it more expensive for a second player to come in and a third player there's a map to explore you can leech off each other's actions because when you play a card down it's possible for the next players around to use your same action again by playing a diplomat card lots of things going on like i said it's matt gertz the rondel king moving slightly away from a rondel system but doing something fairly similar with quite a sharp bit of deck building very very interesting game i'm loving exploring it sean have you got any thoughts on concordia only that i really wish i could have a game of it i one it's the game out of our two top tens that has escaped me this year i've really wanted to play it two people i know including ronan own the game and i still haven't quite gotten around to playing it it is being nominated for award after award it's making almost everybody's top 10 and it seems to be a really great game but I can't really comment any further than that because I haven't actually managed a game of it. I'm actually quite shocked. I have only had three or four games of this and it feels like I've played it loads more. I know I keep on seeing it played. It's always getting played near me. It's been a really big hit in my gaming groups. It seems to always be around. People always seem to want to be playing it. Every time it's introduced to new players, they seem to enjoy it. I'm not sure I've met a single person who hasn't enjoyed it so far. Really, really solid game and we are going to play it, Sean, and... I am going to play more of it, and I'm pretty certain you're going to enjoy it because it really is interesting. It hits that Euro engine building game where there's lots of going and lots of decisions to make. I'm pretty sure you're going to like it. That's uh, my number six for 2013, Concordia. I'm going to hold you to that. Next game we play has got to be Concordia. Or Invaders. <laughs> only, only if the palette's been cleansed. <laughs> right, now... My number six choice came at me a little bit from left field. When I looked back over the year and looked at the games I've played, this one actually came to me as probably being the most consistently fun game I've, I've played. It's Cube Quest from GameRight, designed by Gary and Oliver Sibthorpe. Now, what is QQS? We actually did cover this in one of our Picking Over the Bones. It's a strategic dexterity game where players are flicking lightweight cubes at their opponents. What press release to... did you get strategic from? Uh, <laughs> all right, pushing it a little bit far. I probably actually read that from the box. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure there's much strategy in it. Anyway, where players are flicking lightweight cubes at their opponents and they're trying to pierce the defence and take the king out. The cubes represent troops and these troops have varying powers and special actions to help in attack and defence. comes up in like a mouse map material game playing surface and 
it does exactly what it says on the tin. You have got a load of cubes and you're flicking those cubes and you're trying to knock the opponent's cubes off the board or off the table mat and trying to get at the king. We played this first off in the UK Games Expo of 2013, where I think we sat down and played with the designer, one of the designers and his son, who absolutely mauled us. But Ronan bought it straight off the bat that right there and then. And we had so many fun games of this. I don't think the people around us were particularly enamored when they kept getting cubes in their eyes and their drinks and up their noses and what have you but and we're forever diving under tables to retrieve lost cubes but everyone that played it seemed to have an absolute riot so that's why it's so high in my top 10 it is everything you say is true really really good fun you can play it with anyone it's one of those games people look at and think was a bit silly and the minute they start playing it they see the appeal to it uh, it, it's like Sabuto or what have you. It's got that physical thing of trying to flick, testing your own skill with wrapped in some gamely sort of rules. You can all build your own army and what have you. It's a, it's a big hit for me as well. Again, one that was just outside, didn't quite squeeze in, but easily could have done. Um, I think this is a really good choice and probably one of our more left field ones. I know it's been picked up by Game right now, so I'm hoping it's going to get a, a wider distribution again and get well known because I just think there's a lot, a lot of fun in that oh there really is and i think when we first got it we were just playing the very very basic rules we weren't really paying too much attention to what each the individual cube character or soldier or whatever you want to call them does and then uh trust lloyd to actually read the rules properly and start actually playing it in a gamey style and actually start adding that's probably where the strategy came from lloyd <laughs> just <laughs> we're on, in trouble, on his own <laughs> on his well yeah. On his own, and yeah, he just started, he started introducing us to actual things you could do with the soldiers, and we're like, oh, that's cool, and the game came a little bit better. So yeah, as I said, definitely from left field, but I couldn't think of a game that I had more fun playing. So my number six choice is Cube Quest. And in a similarly quick and light-hearted vein, my number five is Nations. This was designed by Rustan Hakansen, Nina Hakansen, Ina Rosen and Robert Rosen. Came from Lutterpellet.fi and is a multi-hour civilization tableau building game in which players are drafting cards which represent... Um, Buildings within their empire, military units, possibilities to have battles, possibility of wars for everyone to face. They're trying to deal with different issues while attempting to build an economy and develop different resources and score points, basically, for everything that they're trying to, to create within their civilization. It's definitely uh, towards the heavier end of any of the games in our top tens. It is very much compared to Through the Ages which is a game I certainly didn't find as accessible as Nations, although probably makes better use of its box space, which is the last time I mentioned the box space and how ridiculously big the box is for Nations, I promise. I think there's a whole lot of game there. I find it really interesting. I found it all very intuitive. I think that 
if you really want to enjoy it, by all means, learn the game. Because it's not that easy to learn. Although, once I think you get a game under your belt, then suddenly everything starts to make more sense. It's not really a difficult game, but maybe one that just needs that one learning game to get your head around where you're going. Because there's so many different options in the game. But the game comes with basic cards and expert cards and advanced cards. I definitely recommend mixing in the advanced and expert cards. But be very careful. There is a certain ratio of each type of card for each era that you should maintain. There's a certain number of military units and golden ages and battles and what have you. And if you just chuck everything together, you can get very unbalanced uh, deals. It's something that's mentioned in the rule book that you should maintain the balance, but it's, it's mentioned in a really funny place. A lot of people miss it. Chuck all the cards in, but maintain the balances. Very, very interesting game. Again, one that I would have thought I had played more often than I have. I think perhaps there's just that I'm not sure that how often I want to teach it sort of thing to it because it is it does take a bit of learning to get under but I have enjoyed every single game of it Sean you and Nations you were very excited to try it what did you think I was very excited to try it and very well done on being reserved with the game box size conundrum um I think we're going to try and smuggle Puria into Germany for Essen this year, in it? Just to test <laughs> out parts the dimension. <laughs> I played it just the once, and that is the sole reason it's not... not Never mind my top ten, it's, it would be in my top five. I haven't quite got my head around it. I need more plays to, do, to really decide how good the game is, and I can't really judge it on just the one play so far. It is... A very, very interesting game. Lots of things going on. Definite strategies to take. I love a Civ building game anyway. And this is this one is one of the best Civ building games I've played. But on one play, I can't really justify putting it in my top 10 just yet. Yeah, it's definitely very much an abstract of building a civilization. It's also, I think, slightly more tactical than people expect it to be due to the fact that there's there's different threats to face each round and, and how the other players play does affect what you're doing because it, it, there's different things to chase and generally you're going to get rewarded or you're going to get punished for having the most or the least of something. So having most military is handy and having the least military is bad. And then depending on what cards have come out, having most of this or most of that. But different things, you know, collecting the books is all completely relative. You score points according to if you have more books in the game than the other players. Well, the highest a player's got is only a handful. Then that is very different to if someone's shot way off into the lead and they've got dozens and dozens of books. So definitely it's got a very tactical element. You must have an overarching strategy, which is difficult to do when you're initially dealing with the game and with that tactical aspect of it. Plays different through the ages despite the similarities on the uh, on the surface of it and for sure Sean a game that there is a lot to explore there and one of those has got real potential to, to keep gaining and gaining and gaining and I'm getting higher and higher up in my estimations and that's my number five for 2013 nations so on to my number five and halfway through our top ten is Bruges from Z-Man Games and the ever-famous Stefan Feld. Bruges, we have talked about it, but again, it is a card-driven economic city-building game with a little bit of dice rolling thrown in. Players are merchants in 15th century Bruges, 
And not only are you competing against each other, but you will need to be mindful and prepare for events that can scupper your hard work. Now, for me, Bruges was always on my hit list when we went to Essen last year because the way the dice work and the way that the dice play an integral part of the game, they affect the threat and they affect certain things like your income. So that appeals to me straight straight off the bat. The fact that you aren't only combating against each other, you have been, got to be mindful of these threats that are going to come in and you've got to prepare and sort of almost put up your defences in case these things completely scupper you. There is a lot of variety in this game with the characters and buildings that you are going to have as your as your tableau. Uh, each character is going to give you a certain little bonus, and there's so many of these. Uh, you're only going to play with a, a half or two-thirds of, of the pack each time you play, so there's going to be a lot of variety a good-looking game. I know Ronan didn't necessarily think so, but I thought it was actually a very pretty game. Uh, quite vibrant. The colours were really bright and the artwork was nice. It was just a really enjoyable game. And again, it's another one of those games that just doesn't outstay its welcome. It plays in a time frame that is just right for the amount of depth in this game. It's pretty good. It's okay. <laughs> Damned by fame. Uh, you know, I don't think it does anything particularly different or innovative. Um, I, I don't think it looks that bad. I'll tell you, the, the main issue I have with it, to be honest, is that it's completely tactical. Uh, you can try and have a strategy, but at the end of the day, you're drawing almost a completely new hand of cards every turn. And what you can do that turn is going to be limited by what hand of cards you happen to draw. Uh, and so therefore no matter what you think you might want to do if the cards don't fall your way you're just not going to be able to do it um, trying to keep those majorities for example if you don't get the cards to maintain the building of your canals well then you're going to fall behind and then it's almost possible to catch up so you, your strategy has to then shift due to the hand of cards you have which means actually it's not very strategic because that's not what strategy is about it's actually very tactical I thought that perhaps if I learned the characters that become available then that might add some strategy to it for me. But there are so many characters, which is a big bonus because it makes it really, really replayable, the game. But it, it, you, you, there's no chance of, of knowing all the characters until several plays in, and then you don't know what characters you're going to draw anyway. So sort of preparing your houses and, and your tableau of characters for certain characters to come along to trigger certain things is just impossible because you don't know if you're going to get it or not. So, and also means that some of the early game decisions are, are pretty much random as to how effective they're going to be because you might hope to get characters, let's say, in the noble houses or, or artists. Maybe you won't. And there's no way of knowing that. So it's almost head off on a certain direction, hope that it, it comes to fruition. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's it's a decent game. I will play it. I enjoy playing it. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's for me, it's not top 10 material. See, now, you've just described a lot of the reasons why I actually like the game, and it is in my top ten. I like the fact that you can't absolutely map out every single move you're going to make to the end of the game, and you don't, you're don't, you not able to plan to the nth degree exactly where you're going and your strategy. I like you have to be quite reactive. The characters are so varied that there's always something to do when, the, when you get those new hander characters in, into you. There's always something to do. There's enough scope to sort of divert your tactics in the game 
I'm not sure if it's the most polished game. I don't. Th- I'm not sure if it if the best player will always win the game. But I think the best player will mostly win the game. And I like the fact that you're on your toes all the time. So almost exactly the reasons that Ronan didn't like it or didn't particularly like it. I kind of like it. Is what I liked about the game. So that was my number five choice. That's Bruges. So we are heading into the very top of our list of the best of 2013. And for the last time in these lists, I'm afraid my number four comes later in Sean's list. And we will talk about it then. There you go. So on to my number four. And that is Rampage, now renamed all the new additions uh, to Terror in Meeple City. Shocking name, by the way. It's it's a poor name. I don't know. I don't know why they couldn't use Rampage. Wasn't I think it was a... um, copyright issues with the old yeah. computer game. I think. Oh, it was the old computer game because I did remember the old computer game. Well, there you go. A little bit of news for me as well. It's designed by Antoine Balzat and Ludovic Morblanc, and from a Repos production. This is a game where you are taking on monsters that are attacking Meeple City. Meeple City is constructed. In front of your very eyes, by stacking building tiles on top of meeples, and the city actually comes up and is a 3D representation. What you're going to do is basically flick your monster feet to as close as you can get to the buildings and either drop your monster on the buildings, flick things off your monster's head, or even blow from the top of your monster's head to try and knock the buildings down, knock the meeples off the board, collect them, hit each other with these these moves, and just have a complete destruction fest. A very, very enjoyable game. One for all the family. It's a great party game. It's one of those games that people catch out of their corner and they see four people laughing and joking and and this very very visually stunning game and they come over and they ask oh what's this oh i wouldn't mind having a game of that it's one of those that just draws people to the table where you're playing there's not a lot more to say it's just a great family party game and it looks spectacular it does look spectacular and it is fun to play but i don't think the game stands up to the component and i've slightly called on it i would have to say so positives it looks great funny theme it's a lot of fun in setting the buildings up and knocking them down again real physical pleasure in playing the game my issues with it are uh firstly the scoring is a whole bunch of nonsense that you have to have six different colors to score 10 points so if you have eight eight meeples that are red for example they score you nothing but you have to have one different one and score you 10 points crazy we always score one point for each meeple if it's not in a set if you get a whole set you get 10 points for it so we've had to house all the scoring straight away otherwise it's just ridiculous my main issue i know it's a bit silly sort of going into the gameplay on something which is as light as this but each monster starts with six teeth and the six teeth mean that you can eat up to six meeples that are in your neighborhood at the end of your turn great when you've got those six teeth you will very rarely have six meeples in your neighbourhood because it's starting off. You have to start destroying the board before you can get it knocked down the layers and start getting more and more meeples onto the board. 
if you're playing with anyone who's got any sense at all, they're going to be attacking each other. You're also going to be incompetent and flick your disc off. And you start losing those teeth. And when you lose the teeth, you lose the ability to eat. And quite soon, you're going to be down to two or three teeth. And you're only going to be able to collect two or three meeples. Which means, as you destroy the city, your scoring is slowing down. And the game, actually, for a game this light and supposed to be quick, bogs down a bit. Because if everyone can only eat two meeples at a time, you're taking three times as many turns as you need to. Also, once you run out of teeth, if you start attacking each other and knock each other down, people can start stealing meeples out of each other's belly. And we've actually got to the point, and this is with my kids, so it's not just a gamer's thing, but they, you think someone's in the lead, so you just start attacking them because you know you're going to steal two of their meeples every time you hit them. So... Uh, I, I do feel bad having a go at a game that's this light, it's kid-friendly, it looks beautiful, but there are a couple of gameplay issues there whereby it slows down and it's too rewarding to attack each other. It's not just funny to attack each other, it actually slows the game down more because you're, you're taking things off each other. It's still a good game. I still I had it out this weekend to play with the kids. I'm, I'm still willing to play it. I just think that those components deserve a slightly better game to play. Dude, I think you're reading way too much into this one. Yeah, but, but the issue is that I, I and I do feel like, you know, it's kind of crazy to pick on the mechanisms. Forget about that. It's more the result. The game has got a bad arc to it because it slows down and the more it goes in. When the destruction should be ramping up and you should be smashing things up and eating more meeples and more meeples and, and, and sort of getting it all like it all goes into a frenzy. Actually, it all really slows down. It becomes a bit like a tea party because you can't eat anything. Uh, so it becomes a bit too, you know, there's no point going into that area where there's loads of meeples everywhere and chomping them all up because I can't. I can only eat two. I like it. I had <laughs> lots of fun. <laughs> That's my number four, Rampage. Okay, we'll move on. But we're going to move on to another kind of lighter family orientated game. and. Obviously, we're into the top threes now, so we're talking our very favourite games of the year. And this, for me, is been such a big hit. It is Forbidden Desert, designed by Matt Leacock, came from Game Right Games. It is a cooperative game. Now, Matt, as you probably know, designed Pandemic and all these Pandemic games that are coming, including Pandemic Legacy. Very excited to see that. And most notably when it comes to this Forbidden Island. Now, it's claimed this is a re-implementation of Forbidden Island. It's definitely different enough that i wouldn't call it re-implementation it is forbidden island on steroids it is much more challenging for, than forbidden island the players play a party that have been stranded in a desert and there's a real bad uh, sandstorm going on it's going to escalate and they have to stop their way out from being blocked with sand they've got on a timer against the, the storm that comes too intense if they get blown away and also they're under constant threat of running out of water and if any of them run out of water and die that's it they cannot win the game in order to win the game they're trying to find the four missing components of a flying machine and then they need to get to a launch pad and take off and go always tense always really good fun where rampage slows down as the game goes on and i feel that it's a big thing lacking they've got the arc wrong in that game i think the arc in this game is almost perfect because it ramps up and up and up and you get more and more problems and you can't keep up with the storm and it really does feel like a force of nature it feels like your doom is inevitable and you are in a race you have to get out before that storm's going to kill you you have to draw more and more cards which is a very familiar mechanic for matt leacock games and 
it really is a challenging, stressful, tense, fun game in which you genuinely have to cooperate. Players have to use their special abilities to the best of their ability. You have to combine what you're doing across the board and talk to each other and decide where's the best way to go. Really big fan, surprisingly big fan of Forbidden Desert. I like Forbidden Island. I didn't love it that much. This, I think, really is a fantastic game. Sean, Forbidden Desert. I concur. It is a fantastic game. It's a great cooperative game. My only slight criticism is I'm not always sure, and the same goes for its predecessor, Forbidden Island, that you have a lot of choice in your actions. There, there seems to be there's an optimum move. There's a move that you must do. There's certain things that everyone has to help out with. It's not a choice. It's, it's, you need to do that. So I'm not 100% sure that you have a lot of decision-making, but the way the game works itself, it is very tense. It is very thematic. looks beautiful, especially with that airship at the end. Absolutely stunning. Yeah, great family game and enough in there for actual gamers as well. Yeah, I, I... I agree with you, apart from the obvious choices thing. I think that with the three different threats, you have to prioritise what's going on, and it's very easy to, to sort of forget one uh, while worrying about the other one. You, know, you can't spend too much time getting water because the storm's going to get worse, and you you feel like you can ignore certain tiles and just once you've unveiled them and and let the sand build up on them, but then actually you're just going to run out of sand. So you can't. I, I do feel it pulls you in different directions and. Uh, anyway, I, I just really enjoy it. Really fabulous game. Great game to play with my family. Uh, unfortunately, the, the little one gets far too stressed about it and needs to go for a little lie down afterwards. But it's okay, she'll recover. My number three game of 2013 is Forbidden Desert. So, on to my top three. Also, Ronan's number 10 pick, which he mentioned earlier. It is Lewis and Clark. Designed by Cedric Chaboussi, uh, published by Ludenort. So Lewis and Clark, it's a representation of this uh, amazing journey that Lewis and Clark made across North America. And basically players are going to take on the roles of actual people from that expedition and people that they came across in this expedition. And it's a race to get across North America to the Pacific. You are going to do a bit of worker placement going on. There's a little bit of hand management, card drafting, all these things happening. And for me, the really interesting point was always the way that the cards had a dual purpose. Now, you could either use the character's ability or they had a strength to them which would power other things in the game so you always had that choice to make whether you use the card for its ability or whether you could afford to maybe let that one go just to power another card lots of things going on lots of combinations there's a slight issue i have with the game which is quite odd because it's my number three game in that there's a couple of strategies and a couple of card groupings that are almost unbeatable you have to be really on top of your game to notice that the person's getting this strategy going and has the right cards to do it. Is that so great because your wife whoops you at this game? She whoops me every single time. I've never won a game of this and it's my number three. That's how good this game is. It looks amazing. Absolutely beautiful game. The card design, the board design, everything about it, absolutely stunning. That race element is exciting. The way the mechanisms work are all really clever and they all intertwine beautifully. I like this game, Ronan. 
I like this game too, Sean. Um, like a whole lot of people, I started off with like a three-hour behemoth of a game for Lewis and Clark when we were all first learning it and thinking, wow, this is really a meaty, meaty Euro. It's very thinky and puzzly and trying to work out the best way to combo the cards. What I found over repeated plays is that a lot of times, um, if you are spending that long playing it, it's because you're building the wrong sort of a deck. I've been beaten in 45 minutes in this game, and I don't think any of my recent games have taken longer than 90 minutes, and that's right on the outside. It's a game you can definitely learn to get better at. You can definitely learn certain cards in that lineup are going to suit what you're trying to do with your deck and how you're planning on being successful in the game, and you, you can really focus in on a strategy and go for it. Now, how that works and which cards come up for you and how you build that it depends and as you say sometimes when you start going in a certain direction there'll be cards that come out that really complement where you started going and you can get some really great combos and i haven't seen anyone get to the level of competency in which they can not only manage their own decks but also then be aware of what other people are building and aiming towards and therefore sort of um negative drafts to prevent them from building up i think that would almost take fun out of the game but i'm definitely seeing players get better and better at it i'm definitely seeing the game build up i'm seeing it becoming much more of a race um it all be you know a, an extended race and i'm very interested to see where the game goes now because it does it stand up when players get very good at it is it good as a 60 minute genuine race is it worth the effort or is it a case of when you're playing with very good players is it whoever gets those combos first is going to win the game uh, i really enjoy the game it is in my top 10 for the year but it's definitely keeping me interested in the fact that our game players group has evolved in this one yeah couldn't say it better it, it, so far i think it is standing the test of time but we're only a year in now, or not even a year. And yeah, so far, it's one of the games that obviously my wife likes to play because she uh, wallops me every time. But it's one of the games that I always look at when I'm thinking, oh, what should we play? And when we can't decide, Lewis and Clark is always on the tip of our tongue. So yeah, my number three and Ronan's number 10, that's Lewis and Clark. Okay, so we are now heading into both of our top two for 2013. This really is going to be the best of the best games. And I think you probably would have heard us talk about all four of these games before. But my number two for the year is completely out of left field. Not something I ever thought I would enjoy this much. It is the two-player abstract game, The Duke. Designed by Jeremy Holcomb and Stephen McLaughlin. It has got a playing time of, it says 30 minutes, but this is going to take you everywhere from between five minutes to an hour. It is played out on a grid, and players start with one duke and two footmen pieces. And the interesting thing about these pieces are they are tiles, and they are asymmetrical. And whenever you move or do anything with one of these tiles you flip it over to the other side and then a different set of powers and movements become available and with each move your piece is going to flip the other interesting thing is that you can recruit 
more pieces onto the board to play with you in your attempt to capture the other player's duke piece. However, these come from a bag and you're drawing out of your army and there is a fairly big selection of different pieces, all with different powers and moves on, which you draw out and bring into play whenever you're recruiting onto the board. So no two games are the same. It's very much spatial. It's very much combining moves to set the other player up to get them into a checkmate sort of position with their dukes so they cannot get out and you can claim the win. It becomes very cat and mouse. You're waiting for the other player to make a mistake once you become any good at this at all and i certainly would not claim to be any good at this game a two-player abstract as my number two game of the year unbelievable sean the duke it has very good components i can understand why people like it but not really a game for me it just strikes me as next generation of chess or something like that but not as good as chess it's not really a game for me i like i like theming games i like games to look vibrant and pretty and this isn't even this isn't setting out to do that it's definitely a good game it's definitely a well thought out game it's definitely a clever game uh, maybe I'm saying a bit too much about myself that I don't like it so much, but I can appreciate it. Oh, that's good to hear. Um, I th- I think I think I said it before, but I'm going to reiterate the point. You have to learn chess to be very good at it and feel competitive. With this, due to that random element and you don't know which bits are going to come out, you don't have to learn the game to feel competitive. You can just react to what's on the board. There's not as many pieces in play as there is in chess. So it's, there's not so much thinking to go on for each move. However, you do have to plan ahead to some degree. I think it's chess for Egypts, which is why it appeals so much to me. And I really find it to be incredible fun. And it's my number two game of 2013. And that is The Duke. Right, my number two and Ronan's number nine, which I'm actually quite surprised he hasn't gone higher because he does play this one quite a lot. It is Pathfinder the Adventure Card Game, designed by a whole gaggle of designers, including Chad Brown, Tanis O'Connor, Paul Peterson, Mike Salinka, and Gabby Weedling, and the publisher, and this is Pezo Publishing. So what is it? It's an attempt at a role-playing card game where players are going to take on the roles of fantasy staples as like your sturdy dwarf, your, your sorceress, your barbarian warriors. And what you're going to be doing is a cooperative game where you've got a deck of cards and you're going to be using those deck of cards to try and complete quests and go to areas, defeat baddies and find villains. As you go on this game, you're going to gather equipment, spells, you're going to go up in experience, very much like a role-playing game. All the add-on decks for this form a campaign where at the end you're going to fight the big baddies and hopefully defeat him. So, Roland, we've both got this. We've both given it a lot of game time. We've had our quibbles with this, and mine in particular was the design of the cards. just didn't appeal to me. But just on, scratches... on that quick note, this yes. was nominated for Best Art in the Dice Tower Awards. I think when the art is good in the game, it's the, the art itself is nice, but I think the design of the cards is quite bland. So that was, yeah, was, whole, yeah, I was a bit shocked myself. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Anyway, <laughs> I think what this game does is scratch 
an itch that we've had for a little while in in our gaming path. We've kind of been looking towards Dungeons and Dragon games, and we did that whole Dungeons and Dragons episode, and we were looking for a game very much like this that those Dungeons and Dragons games didn't really offer us. Now that's probably because Dungeons and Dragons offer role-playing games, so they don't want to really cross over too much. But this game does cross into the path of role-playing and very much on its own in in that aspect for me. So it was a game I definitely had to own. It's a game I definitely enjoy, and that's why it's my number two. Mechanically, this game is a pile of rubbish. It just doesn't. I wouldn't go that far. It oh, has its Sean, it's no. It's. Uh, I really like it. It's, it's my number nine of the year. But if you stripped it down, it really is a bit. It's really random. It's the same thing where you're chasing cards through a deck in every single scenario. They have. They have not put in enough variety in the scenarios at all, which I think they could have done. It's really easy. The, a lot of the appeal comes in wanting to find the good stuff in the decks. But there's so little good stuff in the decks that yeah, I get a chapter pack and I open it up and I think, oh, great, what's coming now? And I look at it and I go, oh, I know I'm going to spend eight hours of gameplay, say, chasing the two cards in there that's going to make my party any good. It just shouldn't work. It just should but it does I love it. It really appeals to me. I get it out and I play it and I play it with you and I play it with other people and I have fun and we are working together and we do often feel like we've got ourselves in a situation we can't get ourselves out of. Uh, and it, it almost seems like the player interaction overcomes the mechanical flaws in the game because there's certain party combinations and you, you get to say a location. So you have a location that needs a perception check to close. And you've got no one who's any good at that in your party. What do you do? And then you end up having to like specifically save loads of blessings, which makes other things more difficult. And it just it, it doesn't really work. But it does work. And I don't know why. It, definitely the collector in me is, is dug into it by this gaming crack. Uh, I've bought every chapter pack as soon as it's come out. I've got the character out and all the rest of it. I've got... And even though I haven't caught up at all, I'm only, I think, in the third uh, chapter pack in terms of how far I've got with with different um, gaming groups into this game, I'm still thinking about getting the next base set when it comes out next month. I can't logically explain other than it's hardwired into me to enjoy this campaigning, the fantasy setting, the fighting of the monsters, the overcoming the challenge, and I find enjoyment in playing this game despite what I see as the many, many shortcomings. Well, yeah, it's as I said, it delivers something that we can't get anywhere else. It's that developing a character and having that character go with you through thick and thin, and you do have to work together. And I think it kind of harkens back to our days with the likes of Hero Quest and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I agree with you to a degree. I don't think it's as, as poorly put together as maybe you're suggesting, but I do agree it has its flaws and at no stage should it be in the top 10, but it is. And it's very enjoyable for that. That's my number two and Ronan's number nine, Pathfinder, the adventure card game. Okay, so my number one and my game of the year for 2013 is the rather wonderful 
Russian Railroads. Designed by Helmut Oli and Lonnie Orgler, it came out originally from Hams in Gluck and is from Z-Man in English. It is a medium heavy, I'd say, Euro worker placement game in which players are nominally attempting to develop their own set of railroads in Russia, although that is very much not integral to the gameplay. And you're trying to certainly develop a point-scoring engine, which is going to start off humbly, scoring you a handful of points at a time. It's going to develop throughout the game until you're scoring points by the dozen towards the end. I think it's beautifully produced. I think it harkens back to perhaps a simpler age in gaming in that it just takes simple mechanisms and threads them together. It doesn't make things multi-stage. I don't have to do half a dozen actions in order to add a bit of track to my developing railway. I do one action to do that. However, the adding of the track has implications to other actions I take during the game. And that's where the interest comes. In the beginning, because you're not scoring many points in the game, it feels like perhaps your choices are not that important. I say that every choice you make in this game is important. And it's important not just to you, but it's important to the other players you're playing against. It has a ripple effect, because by me choosing to do something, I have denied you. Now, that's true in most worker placement games, but I think in this one, it's absolutely crucial because the board is so tight. There are so few spaces. You will not be able to do everything you want to do on your turn, and you're going to have to make difficult decisions, and that has got to be the key to the appeal in the worker placement genre, and I feel they've got this completely right. I think that there is a surprising amount of player interaction and it all comes by that central board. I think that you have to have a long-term strategy, but you have to be flexible in terms of how you achieve that strategy. And you have to be able to judge when the sacrifices you make and the price you pay in order to do certain things become not worth it. And it's best to slightly branch off or delay doing something in order to come back the next turn and do it. I think it's a really interesting game. I did worry about replayability after the first couple of games of it, but I've now played it several times and I'm still loving it. I love getting it out on the table. I really enjoy playing it. With two players, it's not quite as good as it is with more players, but it can be played in just half an hour and gives something slightly different. It's a chance to almost sharpen certain strategies and, and explore the game in a much shorter playing time. Big fan of this Russian Railroads. It's my game of the year for 2013. Sean, are you as big a fan of this as I am? I think you know I'm not quite at your levels there, Ronan. I think I'm very similar to your sort of thinking on Bruges. It's okay. I like it. It's fine. I'm not bowled over by it. It's a little bit dry for me. I, th- I find it just uh, it doesn't really appeal to me as much as some of the other worker placement games that we've played sort of the last few years. But it's okay. It all works fine. I'm I'm not sure if there is that many strategies to take. Every time I've played it, the player who's built up the Moscow to Vladivostok dock track seems to have taken the victory so and there has been some talk of people saying that that might be the sort of optimum way to go ronan's assures me that that's not the case 
and he's seen various uh, victories from all all over the board. So, yeah, I I, th- I think maybe I need to play it a little bit more, learn the game a little bit more. But the few games I have played, I've been a little bit meh. Okay, yeah, it's okay. I like it. It's probably in my top twenty of the year, but really not appealing to me enough to be in my top ten. I think that if you're allowed to get away with Moscow to Vladivostok, it can be pretty powerful. But it is really a long-term strategy. And in order to be completely successful at it, you have to get all the actions you want early. If you're the first person continually to unlock the next color of railways, you're at a big advantage. Because it, it then means, for example, if I'm the first person to unlock the brown rails, only I can use the spaces on the board to, to build those brown rails. So uh, I know that I don't have to rush to those spaces. I can do other things to help set me up later on. And then with my meeples at the end, place in there because I know they're going to be uncontested. And, and the same again for the natural kind of ones and the same for the big, huge white ones. The way I think people learn to adjust to that strategy is that, okay, sure, you're the only person that can build brown rails, but you have to get the black and the gray rails far enough ahead to be able to build those brown rails and then push them along because the rails can only be built in color order. So therefore, if we just take the black and gray rails away from you, you can't develop those brown rails any further. And then you have to go to the inefficient strategy of one meeple for one move in order to get your railway going, and that's not going to work. So if you let people get away with it, sure, it can be very powerful. If you're aware someone's going for it and the other players are aware, it's actually not that hard to block and people will soon catch you up and they will also unlock those color rails and then you're in a mad scramble. And in as in lots of worker placement games, if you're scrambling for the same strategy as someone else, then it's actually the third strategy that's going to become the most effective one. So as... as you said I've seen people win focusing hugely on the industry track and then using the bonuses and the factory extractions that that's given them in order to then suddenly develop other areas and score lots of points or heading out straight away for the four bonus tiles to, to kickstart your railway and get you going or getting hold of that level nine locomotive from a bonus tile to suddenly fire something up you know maybe the, the bottom track get your Kiev medal scoring points wherever it might be there are other ways to go. I think the Moscow to Vladivostok is the most obvious one and powerful if it goes unchecked. And that's what I really like about it. I know it's a really overused term, but I think it's a very elegant game. And every move can be countered and every move has an impact on the players around the board. I really, I obviously, I picked it as my game of the year, really think it's a fantastically clever, elegant game that doesn't try and do too much but gives you a wide, wide, deep strategic area to think in and interact in. And that's my game of the year for 2013, and it is Russian Railroads. On to my game of the year, and it is also Ronan's number four in his top ten, and that is Eldritch Horror from Fantasy Flight and designed by Corey Konichka. Eldritch Horror, very much in this, from the stable of Arkham Horror, is a cooperative adventure game set in the world of the Cthulhu mythos and following closely in the footsteps of its older brother Arkham Horror. Players are going to travel across the globe attempting to solve a series of mysteries and ultimately defeat the Ancient One who is threatening to devour the world as we know it. In a very similar but streamlined way to Arkham Horror, Players will visit locations, fight monsters, earn clue tokens, and travel to other worlds through gateways that must be closed. Some of the new features 
in Eldritch Horror are the expeditions and the quests, and they are condition and debt cards that will definitely come back to haunt you. So why do I like this one? This one, it retains the feel and a lot of the gameplay for Markham Horror, but has definitely streamlined and modified the play to make it more accessible, and it definitely, I think, appeals to a much larger audience, because... Arkham Horror in itself was a big undertaking and I think it just didn't seem to hit the right note with certain certain people, certain groups of people. It definitely had its diehard fans, one of what which I was, but yeah, this game has definitely made it a lot more mainstream. Again, it's Fantasy Flight, excellent build quality, the artwork that we are accustomed to, absolutely beautiful. And the new additions for me that have brought a fresh level of excitement to the table. Those those deck cards and those condition cards that you've had taken an injury to the hand, now that's going to come back and haunt you at some stage in the game. The deck cards, you're in debt to a shadowy organisation and sooner or later somebody's going to come and recall that debt. So those little changes that really add to the feel that you are in this world and you are traveling around and there are things out to get you and they're not necessarily just the monsters the world is trying to hurt you as well but it does it in a quite charming way if that makes any sense to anyone so yeah i was always going to love this game this is the game that actually stood out for me as my absolute number one all the others i had to kind of fiddle around with do i want them in do i want them out where are they going to sit this one was always my number one ronan it is really arkham horror but massively improved shortened made more narratively strong made more mechanically strong uh, made much more fun to play. It's a, a sh- real sign that Fantasy Flight games are really hitting a hot streak. I think they've sorted out their rules book issues. I think they've taken that sprawling epic feel to their games, that the the wonderful Chrome, the the strength that that we all that Fantasy Flight games for, and almost tolerated some of the mechanical loose, looseness and learned to tie it into really focused games. Now, not every game of Eldritch Horror works as well as the next one. There are slight issues with it, but in a game which is this ambitious, I can definitely accept it. And when it works, wow, it is fantastic. I was completely blown away with how much I enjoyed this game. I did not expect to enjoy it this much. I just thought it was going to be another loose... Oh, Cthulhu theme game which was going to try and tell a story and not really work and I didn't have high hopes for it but I was so wrong this gave us some of our and I, in fact I haven't played it that often which is probably why it isn't higher than 4 on my list but when I have played it it's given us some of our gaming highlights for the last 12 months Sean some of the funniest moments some of the most memorable stories and that is what you've wanted from these hugely yeah, not just promising but really good fantasy flight games which have come out but here they almost seem to have perfected their recipe yeah definitely with arkham horror it was very much you had to set aside upwards of five hours sometimes because it was just such a massive undertaking and if you had people that weren't quite as 
sort of in, into it and involved in the game as as you were yourself, you kind of felt that you were pushing it on them a little bit. With Eldritch Horror, they have definitely just focused it, streamlined it, and made it a gaming game as well. So, as Ronan said, some of the absolute best moments were uh, that we've had in our gaming calendar so far this year have been due to Eldritch Horror. Now, I think the best way to, to say this about this game is we had probably the worst game in terms of success <laughs> of any game we are ever going to play, ever. We hit nothing. I think we managed to close one gate in two and a half hours. We We all had debts on our head. We had people chasing us. We had pacts that we were in, into that we didn't know who it was with everything we could have done wrong we did wrong or it went wrong for us but i look back to that game with absolute fondness it was the single most hilarious game i've ever played and it was topped off where ronan had a role to basically just so that we, we didn't could continue know we playing. didn't know what was gonna happen did we oh we didn't know yeah basically Ronan entered into a dark pact. Against my will. Against his will. He was told to roll <laughs> roll a dice. And we knew that a, a one result would be pretty bad. So all he had to do is not roll a one. He rolls a one, flips the card over, you're devoured. <laughs> Cue everyone on the floor. Things are so bad that it was almost desperate hysteria at that stage. (laughs) Everything that could have gone wrong had gone wrong. And then to top it all off, here's a dark pact you don't want to have no choice about. Don't roll a one. There's a one you're dead. Now, that might sound awful, but trust me, it was all thematic. I'd taken a risk. And it well, I didn't know who the shadowy figure was that I, I decided to take the risk with. And it turns out they were a demon that wanted to eat me. There you go. And the fact that... We still enjoyed that game, despite everything going wrong. Now, there's games when everything goes wrong, where you'll be sitting there stone-faced, like, and give up the game halfway through. The fact that we continued playing it, we continued enjoying it, there's so many new things coming out and hitting you with these packs, with the quest. You're trying to do certain things. Whereas in Arkham Horror, you're kind of focused towards one goal. In Eldritch, it gives you lots of different little goals to achieve during the game. It keeps your interest peaked. So, definitely my favourite game of the year by an absolute country mile. That's Eldritch Horror. Okay, so you've heard our disappointment in our top 10s. What we wanted to do quickly was kind of talk about the year as a whole, in general, what we thought about 2013 as a year in gaming and specifically the games which came out. Now, in order to discuss that, we're going to run down a couple of other top 10s here. Firstly, because we wanted to see if there's any other major releases we haven't covered. So, as after we go through these top 10, any games we haven't mentioned in our own top 10s, we're going to cover briefly. And then after that, we're going to go on because we think that in those top tens and in our own top tens, and we collect all those four together, it illustrates a point that we 
think we both agree with regards to last year. But the top tens we're talking about is Sean is now going to run us through the current as of when we're recording this. Board Game Geek top 10 releases 2013 in terms of their rankings. Right, so n- number 10 is Bruges. Number 9, Forbidden Desert. Number 8, Concordia. Number 7, something we haven't mentioned, Bora Bora. Number 6, Lewis and Clark. Number 5, Pathfinder. Number 4, Russian Railroads. Number 3, Nations. Number 2, Eldritch Horror. And number 1, another one we haven't mentioned, that's Caverna. And the other 10 we're going to discuss are the 10 games that were nominated for the Dice Tower Awards Game of the Year. Now, neither of us are on the committee for the Dice Tower Awards, so there should be no link between that and these with regards to any top 10 games. And I'm going to read them out in alphabetical order, and then we'll tell you the game that won. And the 10 games nominated were Bruges, Caverna, Concordia, Eldritch Horror, Freedom the Underground Railroad, Forbidden Desert... Pathfinder, Rampage, Russian Railroads, and Trains. Um, The two games we haven't mentioned from there so far are Freedom Underground Railroad and Trains, which we are going to come back to. And it was Caverna that won the very coveted Dice Tower Award for Game of the Year 2013. One quick thing to say before we do move on to cover those games are that in the BGG Top 10 and Rankings, eight of them appeared on either Sean or mine's Top 10. In terms of the 10 games nominated for the Dice Tower Award, seven of those appeared in either Sean or Myers' top 10. And the two lists themselves share seven games with each other. And possibly from me illustrating that point, you might get where we're going to go to a bit later in terms of the releases from 2013. But to cover the four games that were, we mentioned there that weren't our top 10, Sean, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, very, very quickly. I'm going to start with Caverna. Now, this is very much been the big success of the year in terms of it's the number one BGG game for the year, sitting at number eight in the overall BGG rankings. And, of course, as Ronan just said, the Dice Tower Game of the Year award. We haven't managed the game of this. I've just got it for my birthday, thanks to uh, my cousin Steve, Ronan's brother. Very, very grateful to him. But we just hadn't got around to play because of the investment in time that it just seems to be. It is an absolute behemoth of a game in every way. It weighs an absolute ton. There is bits galore in it. And it is a big, big, steep learning curve from the same designer as Agricola and very much in that mould. Looks great. In my opinion, and I'm definitely looking forward to having a game of it, having just acquired Agricola to build up my plays of Agricola. Really looking forward to it. But yeah, just something that's escaped our grasp this year, Ronan. i tell you what, I think I have almost deliberately avoided Caverna because it was been sold as Agricola without the tightness, without the needing to feed your, your people, without the stress of that without the need to make your cards work as best you can. Uh, It's all very much more open. You can choose a strategy and there's more space to explore. But you know what? A lot of the appeal to Agricola for me is that it's not the same as other games, that it is tight. It does feel tough. You might starve. It's a real struggle to get where you're going. You can get blocked very easily. So it really put me off Caverna because it seemed to me to take Agricola and make it more uh, mainstream maybe or more fun 
And I didn't want it to be fun. I want Agricola to hurt. So I've kind of deliberately avoided it, but I am coming round. I'm now very interested in it. Um, I'm certainly glad that Steve got it for you for your birthday and you and me, I'm going to be hitting that up soon to uh, to at least atone for this glaring miss in our plays for the year. A game that wasn't in our top 10s and is in the BGG top 10 for the year is Bora Bora from Stefan Feld. Now, I believe I have mentioned it before the end of the year show when myself and Terry had a chat about it. I have played Bora Bora. Um, I don't think you have, Sean. Well, you know what? You're one up on me there because I just didn't enjoy it at all. I felt like it was a completely disconnected set of mechanisms inside a whole victory point salad mess of a game. I usually like Stefan Feld games. This, to me, like felt like one of his worst ones in the realm of Trajan, but Trajan has got the really endearing Mancala mechanism, which I quite enjoyed, even though the rest of the game I wasn't that taken with. Borobora didn't even have that for me. Um, I will give it another go because some people whose opinion I trust like it, but I really, really did not enjoy my play of Borobora and have avoided it since. So it is in the BG top 10 rankings for the year. It is certainly not in mine. Well, yeah, you, you completely put me off it with your scathing remarks. So I've steered clear uh, of that particular one. Now, another one that features in the Dice Tower, top 10 of the year, is the ever-popular Trains. Now, this is very much in the mould of Dominion with Trains, funnily enough. So you're not only drafting cards into your hand and doing that whole hand management Dominion style thing, but you're also building railway tracks, two cities, uh, across a map of Japan. And what I felt when I played it, I enjoyed it, it, it was a, it was an okay game, but I've got Dominion. And the whole building the railway thing just felt like it was tacked on to the game. So it, it was never really in, under consideration for me. It was an okay game, it, probably in my top 30, uh, but never really in my top 10, run. Yeah, I think okay completely summed up for me as well. I... <laughs> You've got to do something more interesting with the deck builder than try and copy Dominion, because Dominion is the best. With this case, they've tried to do more by adding a spatial aspect on the map. It's not interesting enough to delay what is the interest in Dominion, and that's looking at the set of cards and trying to find the combo that suits you and you think is going to score you most points. I find in trains you're just distracting from that. What it does is slow down the game. What it does is make it that you have less combinations. There's less cards available. The cards are less interesting. It's a not as good version of Dominion with a distraction. It was all right. Uh, if someone asked me to play and they really wanted to play, I'd say, yeah, sure. Ha, it's, I don't think it's top 10 material and I'm not really that interested to play it again. Uh, the last of the four games, which we haven't gone through, is Freedom, the Underground Railroad. Now, this is an interesting game. It's a cooperative game and it's based on the network that was set up in an attempt to take slaves from the south of the United States and move them through the northern areas of the United States and into Canada in order to get them freedom. And obviously quite a difficult subject to take on in terms of any sort of a gaming medium. But by all reports, they've done it fantastically well. They've made a genuinely very tough co-op game in which 
the fate of the people and they are treated as people is very important and quite gut-wrenching at times. We haven't had a chance to play it. It's pretty pricey over in the UK. I think I know one guy who has a copy of it, and I'd really love to give it a go before I made the commitment because real big, heavy co-op that takes a couple of hours and is very tough, that niche is filled with Robertson Crusoe at the moment. There's so much to explore in that box that I kind of feel like I really want to know if if I really enjoy freedom before I take the plunge and buy that as well. So one that I hear is really promising and one I'm very interested in trying any thoughts on freedom, Sean? No, just same as you, to be honest, Ronan. Just really looking forward to actually giving it a go and just seeing how it plays out. It seems very deep. It seems like there's a lot of, lot to do. I'm just wondering if it all ties together and how it ties together is the interest for me. But now, what we're going to do is, as Ronan mentioned at the top of this section, there is a lot of similarity between all four of the lists we talked about today. That's mine and Ronan's, the Board Game Geek list, and the Dice Tower list. The top tens share a lot of games. Now, basically, what we think this shows is that although there were some very, very strong games that came out in 2013, there wasn't really a plethora of good games. There was a strong core, but the depth just wasn't there, Ronan. Yeah, I, I, I just feel like actually exactly what you've just said in that there's a certain core of games which seem to have been pretty universally praised and then there's not a lot after that. And I also actually feel that the the core set of games, it's not a, a plum year. It's not bad, okay, you know, like... But if I look back at last year, which I think was a particularly strong year for releases, and I look at my favourite games from last year... I don't think these games stand up to that crop. And then if I look back to 2010 or 2011, and I look at the number of very good games that come out, then I see all that, that 2013 releases are tailing off really quickly in terms of quality as opposed to these other years. I mean, if we look back at 2012, Sean, just a quick sort of run through of some of my favourite games from last year, you've got the likes off. Lords of Waterdeep, Spartacus, Clash of Cultures, Robinson Crusoe, Yido, Love Letter, Mage Wars, and 2013 just doesn't stand up to that sort of quality. Like you say, illustrated by the point in that all these lists are so similar. Now, you and I, we have kind of similar tastes sometimes in games, but should we really be agreeing this much on the top 10? That was what was really noticeable, that we did share so many. The Board Game Geek ones are influenced by people. The Dice Tower has, I think it's 60 people, but they're, they're going to be influenced to a certain degree by the people that they play with and the Board Game Geek community to some degree and the Dice Tower community to some degree but then when you add me and myself and ronan and i think you know sometimes we meet in the middle but quite often we have wildly different opinions on games and the fact that even we've joined with four games that are exactly the same in our list and our lists really compare to the board game geek and dice tower list so should all four lists be so similar? No, they shouldn't be. There should be a lot of variety there. And it, I think Ronan's absolutely right. When he named that list of games from 2012, I was just sitting there thinking, you know what? Eldritch Horror aside, I think that they're sitting at two, three, four, five, six, seven. Because I don't think anything stands up to them at all. 
Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, I think Eldritch Horror maybe scrapes top ten last year for me from number four this year. And and again, just for comparison, if I tell you the top ten nominees from last year for the Dice Tower, you can see how different they are. So last year the winner was X Wing. And then the other games they nominated were Major Wars, which I like. Uh, Descent, which we both played, and you know we didn't fall in love with it. CO2, Lords of Waterdeep, Netrunner, Mice and Mystics, Space Cadets, and then Robinson Crusoe and Spartacus, which we do like. But I'd say at least half of those would come nowhere near our list. And it wouldn't even be top 15 or top 20, whereas the majority, certainly I think all the games we've played on the Dice list were in our top 10 somewhere, apart from Trains. It, it, it's... I'm not sure statistically it's that bad, but it does illustrate to a point that there's not a variety of great releases. And one of the concerns, I guess, for me is that actually there's more games came out last year than any other year before. And how is this market flooding? Is it just flooding with rubbish? Is it crowdfunding? Is it, are we seeing a drop in the power of publishers? Why is it that we're getting more and more games, but not seemingly an increase in quality so it's been a decent year possibly not a great year so 2013 could have done better 2014 let's lay the gauntlet down yeah 2013 in terms of if you take it and compare it to other years recently not good at all however still a slew of really good games still a bunch of games there that we talked through that we're going to be playing for years to come and the good news for us is that even in a bad year we still have a good year and we still have so much fun playing games i look forward to an even better and a more varied set of lists this time next year So thank you very much for listening to our top 10 list of 2013. It's episode 27 of the Game Pit podcast. You are much appreciated. And please come and play games with us at Luncon 3. Sean? As always, the rundown of how you can contact us. You can email us at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. You can join us on Twitter at gamepitpodcast. If you fancy joining our guild and coming over for some discussions, polls, what have you in there, we are to be found under the game pit. And of course, you can find us at 2d6.org and we are very, very proud members of the Dice Tower Network along with the very best in gaming podcasts. Music by E. Aaron. (laughs) 